0: Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing, intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. If you have your Bible, I'd love to have you turn to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. And as you're turning there, just to kind of bring you up to speed, we began last week in Revelation chapter 12 with another interlude, kind of a parenthetical period that runs through chapter 14 where time actually stands still in the tribulation. And we go back and we're brought up to snuff with the characters, the main characters of the tribulation. There were seven of them. So far, we looked at four. There was the woman who, if you remember, was Israel. Now, when we get to chapter 17, you're going to be introduced to another woman. And she will ride on this beast that we're going to meet today. That woman is not Israel. That woman is false religion. And Pastor Chad will unfold that to you when you get there. So don't get the two women confused. This woman in chapter 12 is Israel. We were introduced to a dragon that we found out from verse 9 of chapter 12. is none other than Satan himself. We were introduced to a male child who is the Messiah, Christ. And then we were introduced to Michael. The archangel. He was the fourth character. Today, we're going to meet the fifth character. And our focus on these characters has been primarily, primarily on one main character, and that's the dragon, Satan, the devil. And there are five things, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, and going through chapter 13, actually all the way through chapter 13, there are five things that we are re- that are revealed about Satan in that passage. We looked at him last week. Description of Satan, verses 1 through 6, the demotion of Satan, verses 7 through 9, where he had a war with Michael and the archangels and by the authority of God was cast out of heaven, the first heaven, second heaven, third heaven, and confined to earth. And then in verses 10 through 12, there were declarations made about Satan. And then in verses 13 through 17, there was deliverance from Satan. So he's kicked out of heaven He's confined to earth, and every attempt he has made and will make to exterminate the woman, Israel, to keep God's kingdom from coming, from keeping Christ to be coronated as the king of the earth, all of those plans have been thwarted. And we read this then at the end of chapter 12, verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman, Israel. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Those would be those, the rest of the believers, who were born again during the tribulation period. Now the question is this, uh, how is he going to do that? How is he going to instigate this massive persecution against Israel and against Israel's offspring and trying to annihilate them? And we see that at the very end of verse 17, the very end of verse 17 of chapter 12 should really be included as the first part of chapter 13. We read this at the very end of verse 17. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now the he there refers back to the first part of verse 17 talking about the dragon. Some of your versions say I stood on the sand of the sea. And it's a reference to John the, ba- the Apostle John. This is not the Apostle John standing on the sea. This is the dragon. This is Satan. He stood on the sand of the sea, verse 1 of chapter 13, and I saw. Now John sees a beast rising out of the sea. So what is this beast that rises out of the sea? Well, he is the fifth character of the tribulation period, and he's also the fifth thing that's revealed about Satan, and that is the dictator from Satan, the dictator from Satan. And we'll look at him in verses 1 through 8 this morning of Revelation 13. You know, uh, the world has always desired to have a leader. And there have been men who have always desired to rule the world. We can look back to Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. We can look back to the pharaohs of Egypt. We can look back to Alexander the Great. We can look back to Napoleon. We can look to Hitler, Mussolini, Lenin, Stalin. We could just go on with a number of names, current ones even today. The desire to have mankind worship them, to kind of set themselves up as demigods, defying the one true God and deifying Themselves in the place of God. But there is coming one. There is coming one who will outdo all of them put together. He will be the final Gentile ruler. There will be none others after him, and there will be none like him that has come before him. He is prophesied in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9 chapter 11 he is taught by prophesied actually by jesus in matthew 24:15 where jesus quotes from daniel chapter 9 he's prophesied in second thessalonians 2 a passage we'll look at today by the apostle paul he is prophesied by the apostle john in john's first epistle in 1 john chapter 2 verse 18 for john says children it is the last hour and as you have heard that antichrist is coming singular So now many Antichrists have come. In other words, we've been been working up to this this character. Hitler was one of those. Mussolini was one of those. I mean, all of the world leaders who have tried to take power, who have persecuted the people of God, have been in this form of the Antichrist. But there's still one that is coming. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He's revealed by many titles. As a matter of fact, on your outline, you'll notice if you flip it over on the back down at the very bottom. I've given to you a number of those titles. He is known in Daniel as the little horn, the prince who is to come, the contemptible person, the king who does as he wills, or some of your versions will say the willful king. Second Thessalonians, he's known as the man of lawlessness, the man of perdition or the son of perdition, the son of destruction, the lawless one. 1 John, we already read that, calls him the Antichrist. Matter of fact, there's another one I left out, out of Daniel. He is called the abomination of, Jesus, uh, of desolation. That's the one Jesus quoted. But here in chapter 13 of Revelation, he's called the beast, the beast out of the sea. He is the first of Satan's false trinity. Next week, Pastor Chad will identify you the second of Satan's false trinity. This person mimics Christ. He is anti-Christ, not that he is necessarily against Christ, but he wants to be in the place of Christ. Next week, you meet a false prophet who will cause the whole world to worship Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does, right? The Holy Spirit causes us to worship Christ. The false prophet will cause the whole world to worship the second person of this false trinity, the Antichrist. Just as Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible Father. So this beast is the visible manifestation of the invisible Satan. Just as Jesus received power from his Father, so this beast will receive power from Satan. And i got to tell you this morning as I share this with you, this was probably one of the most frustrating sermons and preparation I've had in a long time, simply because there's just not enough time to tell you everything I'd like to tell you about this to bring you up to snuff with this. There's so much more we could reveal about him, but at least my hope today is to give you an idea of who he is. The passage we have before us in Revelation 13, 1 through 8 gives us more information about him than any other passage. As a matter of fact, this passage reveals five things about this beast. So let's look at them. First of all, it gives us a description of the beast in verses 1 and 2. John says, And I saw a beast. Rising out of the sea. Now, that word beast literally could be translated monster. This is a hideous creature. So it has the, the connotation of a wild, dangerous, ferocious animal that devours prey. And That describes its nature. It rises out of the sea. I think there's some significance in that. Many times in the scripture, and a lot of commentators believe the sea represents humanity. And there's scripture that does back that up. For instance, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 11, would kind of picture the sea as humanity. Isaiah 17, 12, Isaiah 57, 20 are other passages that do that. But there's a problem with that. If the sea, if this beast comes out of the sea and that represents humanity, then next week when the false prophet comes out of the earth, who does that represent? So I don't think that this beast coming out of the sea represents humanity. I believe that this beast comes from the bottomless pit. I believe that this beast is a demonized human being. And we see that in Revelation chapter 11, verse 5. Matter of fact, we met this beast. I don't know if you remember meeting him, but you met him several weeks ago when Pastor Chad preached on Revelation chapter 11. He was the one who put to death the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. And he was called at that time the, pe- the beasts from the bottomless pit. He's also referred to that in Revelation 17, verse 8. And what's interesting is this, he comes on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation because Daniel 9, 27 tells us that he makes a pact with Israel for one week, each day representing a year or for seven years. And in the middle of that week, he breaks that pact with Israel and he turns on them. That's what these last 42 months, last three and a half years is all about, is that he will turn on them. It is interesting that the fifth trumpet is the releasing of 200 million demons like locusts upon the face of the earth. And I think at that moment, when those demons are released, this world leader becomes demonized, and he carries on a massive massacre against God's people. That's how he's described, from the sea. Now, there are three specific descriptions that John gives him here that he saw. First of all, the beast is described as a kingdom. Verse 1. The beast that rises out of the sea, John saw, had ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. It's almost identical to the description given of the dragon in chapter 12, verse 3. There was a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. A horn in Scripture represents power. Power represents strength. A horn represents that which can attack or that which can defend. Animals have horns, right? They attack people with horns. They defend themselves with their horns. These ten horns represent ten kings who will be in power at the time of the beast. Now, 10 represents totality. So whether that's a literal 10 canes or 10 world rulers, or whether that's symbolic of totality, uh, the totality of the world being under the rule of Satan, we're not sure. But either way, there are 10 horns that represent these 10 canes who will be in power at the time of the beast. Daniel chapter 7, and I'm going to refer to some of these passages. I just couldn't read them all for you today. Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, and all these scriptures are in your notes. So I encourage you to go home and read them over and over and over. Daniel 7, 24 says this, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. This is the man of sin. This is the beast. Another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. So in other words, he's not going to get along with everybody. He's going to exterminate three of the kings, and seven will rule with him. Notice that they have ten diadems. That, that ten diadems represents the power and authority of the ten kings. The ten diadems are on the ten horns. In verse 3 of chapter 12, the, ten, the seven diadems are on the seven heads. But here it's different because we're emphasizing the kings who rule with this beast. He also describes him with seven heads, and that represents seven world empires, the same as it did back in chapter 12. Seven world empires are kingdoms. Look at uh, Revelation 17, 9 through 10 up here. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Now, let me just stop for a minute. If you go to Daniel chapter 2, and you remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and he saw this great image, and part of it was made of gold, and part of it is silver, part of it was bronze, and then the feet was iron, or the legs and the feet were iron, uh, mixed with clay were the toes, all right? And all of a sudden, this image appeared of this rock that grew into a huge mountain, and the mountain smashed the image to bits, and that mountain became the kingdom of Christ. So many times, a mountain is representative of an empire or a kingdom. So there are seven heads, there are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, that's false religion. They are also seven kings. Those seven empires, I think, can be very easily seen throughout the history, world history, and they begin with Egypt, They have something, by the way, all in common. They persecuted the people of God. They persecuted the children of God. They persecuted Israel. We begin with Egypt. Then there was Assyria. Then Babylon. Then Babylon was conquered by Medo-Persian. Then the Medo-Persian kingdom was conquered by the Greek kingdom. And then the Greek kingdom was conquered by the Roman Empire. And the seventh is either a revived Roman Empire or it is an Islamic Empire. Notice that there are blasphemous names on these heads, these seven heads. And basically all that means is they were self-proclaimed sovereignty apart from God. Kind of reminds you in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar comes out on his balcony and he looks over his kingdom and he says, Is this not great Babylon which I have built? All of these kingdoms thought they attained what they attained without the help of God, that they mocked Israel's God. It'll be the same true in the end times, when this beast arises, he will mock God. We're going to see that later. So the beast here is certainly a kingdom, no doubt about that. Maybe the revived Roman Empire, uh, maybe an Islamic empire. The beast also is described symbolically by animals. Look at verse two. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard; its feet like a bear's; its mouth was like a mouth like a lion's mouth. If you would go to Daniel chapter seven, verses one through seven. You would see these three animals referred to the first three kingdoms. Daniel saw a lion, he saw a beast, four beasts, four separate beasts rise out of the sea. The fourth one was exceedingly terrifying. But the first three were a lion, which represented Babylon, a bear, which represented Medo Persia, and a leopard, which represented the Greek Empire, because the leopard is known for its swiftness. Alexander the Great conquered things very, very quickly. So Daniel saw a lion, a bear, and a leopard. John sees a leopard, a bear, and a lion. So why does John turn it around? Well, it's very simple. Daniel, at the time of the vision, is living in the Babylonian kingdom. So he sees everything as future. John is living beyond the future, and he's looking back, and he sees everything from a past view. So as, as uh, Daniel looks ahead, he sees Babylon, he sees Medo-Persia, he sees Greece. As John looks back, he sees the leopard Greece, he sees the bear Medo-Persia, and he sees the lion. So there's no discrepancy there. What's important about these animals is the significance of them. And the significance of the animals is that the beast is the composite of the characteristics of all three of these animals, all three of these empires and rulers in one. Interesting, if you go back to Daniel 7, you'll see that Daniel saw all three of these beasts as individual beasts. It was an individual lion, an individual bear, and an individual leopard. But when John sees his beast... It is the combination of the lion and the bear and the leopard. In other words, all three together. So that the kingdom and the person who comes to rule in that kingdom, the Antichrist, will have the characteristics of all three of the previous kingdoms and rulers combined in one. In other words, be the most terrifying person and the most terrifying kingdom that has ever come upon the face of the earth. So the beast is described as a kingdom. But notice, thirdly, the beast is also described as a person. And this is very important. Fourteen times in those first eight verses of chapter 13, personal pronouns are used. Now, the ESV, very interesting, chooses not to use a personal pronoun. So if you have an ESV, you will see the word it, 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 or its. But if you have a New American Standard, if you have an NIV, uh, if you have other versions, you will find he, he, him, himself. It relates it to a person. Now, if we were just to look at Revelation 13, it might be debatable. Is it a kingdom or is it a person? But if you read Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, chapter 9, 26 and 27, and chapter 11, verse 36, you will find that Daniel refers to him as a person. If you read Matthew chapter 25 or 24, verse 15, you'll see that Jesus refers to him as a person. And when Paul, in 2 Thessalonians verses two, uh, chapter two, verse three and four, he reveals to him as a person. So the beast is both a kingdom and a person that is coming. He is the final ruler before Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. So that's his description. Now, something unique happens to this beast. Look at verse 3. The death of the beast. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Literally, that word mortal means death. Death wound. But its mortal wound was healed. So the beast, what, what it's really saying here is the beast will die and come back to life. It'll die and come back to life. Now, there's two possibilities what that might mean. If you're going to limit the beast to just being a kingdom, then it might refer to the fact that its head many believe might refer to the death and the revival of a kingdom or an empire, possibly the revived Roman Empire or the revived Islamic Empire. But since we've already seen that the beast does refer to a person with personal pro- pronouns, then it must be referring to a person who is killed and then comes back to life. And that is verified, by the way, in Revelation 13, verse 12, verse 14, Revelation 17, verses 8 and 11. As a matter of fact, that word, phrase, mortal, wo- uh, mortal wound, it comes from the same word that is found in Revelation 5, 6. you remember Revelation 5? It was the revealing of the Lamb and the Lion of Judah, the, the Christ, the Messiah. Look at, look at verse 6, Revelation 5, or 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been what? Same word. Same word. Now, this may be a real death and a real resurrection. And you say, can Satan do that? Well, no, Satan can't, but God can allow him to. Satan duplicates miracles. Did you know that? Uh, Go back, if you will, to the time when Moses was going to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And how was God going to affirm him as the leader? As he said to Moses, take your rod and throw it down before Pharaoh and become a serpent. Did that happen? Yeah, it happened. What did Pharaoh's magicians do? They took their rods and threw them down. They become serpents too. So that's why a lot of times I don't put a lot of stock in miracles as every miracle coming from God because Satan also seems to have the ability to mimic many of those things. So this may be a real death, and it may be a real resurrection. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says this, The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, that's this beast, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, wonders, miraculous wonders. In other words, things that people are going to see and they're going to go, Whoa! What greater way to get the world's attention, right? Greater way to get the devotion of the world than to raise someone from the dead. However, this also may be a faked death and resurrection. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 again, and this time add verse 10, but I'm going to go back and read verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, verse 10, and with all wicked what? Deception. All wicked deception. Satan loves to mimic God's work. So if the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead, Satan will pretend to raise the second member of his false trinity from the dead and the whole world will follow it. Whichever way it is, whichever way, whether it's a real death and resurrection, whether it's a fake death or a resurrection, it's going to produce the desired results. Thirdly, notice devotion to the beast. Whether, a, whether it's a kingdom or a human The world will stand in awe of the beast. Look at verse three in the middle. The whole world marveled as they followed the beast. They they wondered after there was wonder, there was awe, there there was admiration. But it isn't long before misplaced admiration suddenly turns into worship. Look at verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. Saying, "Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it?" This whole scene fulfills Satan's greatest desire. His greatest desire has always been to supplant God and receive the worship that was due to God from God and to God. Matter of fact, he tempted Jesus in the wilderness with that, didn't he? All these kingdoms I will give to you if you will fall down and what? Worship me, worship me. Just as the Father is worshipped and glorified when you and i worship the sun so satan will be worshipped when worship is given to the beast and they'll say who is like the beast who can fight against him those are mocking blasphemous words they're used repeatedly those kind of phrases are used repeatedly in the old testament to ascribe the sovereign worship of god think of isaiah who is like you lord who is like the lord who is like lord but here's the whole world who says who's like the beast Who can fight against the beast? And by the way, the Antichrist, the beast, does nothing to deter that worship. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, he says, He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God. Isn't that interesting? There will come a point where he will not allow any other religion to exist. The Antichrist is not a pluralist. He is not a person that's going to allow all the other religions to exist. Pretty soon the only religion that's going to exist is him. So he will exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And by the way, the world will just follow it. You know why? I think God made all people with an innate desire to worship. Do you know that? I think we're just made to worship. The problem is, because of our fallen nature, because of sinfulness, we have a hard time knowing what to worship. We tend to choose to worship the wrong things and worship the wrong people. And I think that's what we're going to see here. The world wants to worship. They're just going to worship Satan. They're going to worship the beast. And not necessarily that they're become Satan worshipers, but in the process of worshiping the beast, they worship Satan as well. They're devoted to him. And when that happens, then we see, fourthly, the deeds of the beast, verses 5 through 8. The deeds, two deeds are listed here, verbal and active. The first deed is what I call arrogant words, arrogant words. Look at verse 5 and 6. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. The beast's words are words of continual boasting and blasphemy. And Daniel describes the same thing. Daniel just said this first, and what John sees in Revelation affirms the prophecies of Daniel. Look at this in Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 and 11 and 20. Now we're looking at the beast as a little horn, okay? He's the little horn here. And behold, Daniel says, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Verse 20, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Even in chapter 11, here he's introduced as the willful king. It says this in verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. That's what we just read in 2 Thessalonians. And he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. The apostle Paul verified that in 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse three and four where he said the son of destruction or perdition, speaking of the Antichrist, the beast who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming proclaiming himself to be God in the middle of the week of his covenant with Israel, he will break that covenant. The Jews will have built a new temple. They will be worshiping in that temple. He will go into the holy of holies and he will proclaim himself to be the God, the most desecrating thing he could possibly do. He is the epitome of arrogance. Not only do we see the deeds of arrogant words, but we also see aggressive deeds, aggressive deeds. The beast will be able to physically torture, perish, and kill, or punish, and kill believers. He will be able to physically torture, punish, and kill believers. Look at verse 7. Also was allowed. By the way, circle that word in your Bible. Verse 7, it was allowed. Back in verse 5, the beast was given. I'll talk about that in a second. As... Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The very thing that Daniel said, chapter 7, verse 21 and 25, Daniel says this, As I looked, now he's talking to the, about the beast as a horn. As I looked, this horde made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That kind of identifies when this is going to happen, doesn't it? Last three and a half years. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. This is a worldwide slaughter of believers. So the beast will be able to physically torture, punish, and kill believers. But you know what he can't do? The beast will be unable to destroy their faith. Isn't that exciting news? By the way, the word conquer here, when it says he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, we've come across that word many times in Revelation already. It's the word Nakao, and it means to have victory over, to conquer, to overcome. The conquering that the beast does is physical, but the conquering that believers do is spiritual. And notice that word is used and identified for us in 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes nikaio, the world. And this is the victory that has nikaio, overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Genuine faith. People of genuine faith in tribulation period will not be destroyed by the beast. They may be destroyed physically. They may be killed, martyred. But they will not be destroyed spiritually. By the way, did you notice the phrases? This is comforting. Did you notice the phrases I had you mark them? The beast was given, the beast was allowed, given, allowed, given, allowed. A lot of times in there. Who gave them? Who who gave that to him? A lot of people would think Satan gave it to him. I mean, Satan does give him power and gives him his throne and all of that. We'll see that in a few minutes. But I don't think it's Satan. Because according to verse 5, his power and authority is limited to 42 months. Satan has worked for a long, long time to get authority and power. I don't think he wants to give it up again in 42 months. So I think the one who's given him the power and who's allowed him to do the things that he's doing is God himself. That God has pulled back the restraint and he said, all right, have at it, 42 months, it's yours. Preserves his own. It is Satan who inspires and motivates the beast. It is God who controls him. By the way, is that not the same true today? We see all these things going on in our country, in our world sin, wickedness that seems to get worse. I want you to tell it, it is motivated, it is inspired by Satan. But let me tell you, it is all under God's control, all under his control. And how important is that for us as we look at the last thing about this beast, and that is the dominance of the beast, his dominance. Everything that the beast has and attains is through the power of Satan. Go back to verse 2, the very end of verse 2, and notice what it says. "And, And to it, the beast, the dragon, Satan, gave his power, his throne, and great authority. So it extends three things now to the beast, his protege. First of all, the beast will be an unstoppable force. That's what it means when it says he gave him his power. Dunamis, dunamis power, dynamic, dynamite power, miraculous might, force, strength. In other words, what he's saying here, no human element can stop him. Nothing human can stop him. The dragon has empowered him, given him power to do this. So he'll be an unstoppable force. Secondly, he will have complete rule in every area of life. The dragon gives him his throne. A king sits on a throne. That's where he rules from. So this beast will have complete rule in every area of life. He'll have rule over medicine. He'll have rule over military. He'll have rule over the economy. He will have rule over everything that goes on in this world. And then thirdly, he will be accountable to no one. Notice that Satan gives him great authority. There's no restraints upon this guy. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit and the church are gone. We're the salt and the light of the world. We're the restraining force, a uh, restraining influence against evil in this world. Paul says this in Second Thessalonians two six and seven. Look at it up here. Paul says, and you know what is restraining him? The him refers to the, law, the the man of lawlessness, the beast. All right, and you know what? Circle. I don't have your Bibles open. Circle it in your mind. Okay, you know what? is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already work. Only he who now restrains. Isn't that interesting? you got a he who restrains, and you got a what that restrains. I believe the what is the church, and the he is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought the church and birthed the church when he came in at Pentecost. And when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world, now he'll still work in the world, but he won't work in the world through the church. When the church is taken out of the world, the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world. The restraint will be gone. It will be gone. And all unbelievers will worship and serve the beast. All. Look at verse 7 in the middle. And authority was given the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Worship it. Now, that sounds pretty inclusive, but there's some limitations here. His dominance is limited in two areas. First of all, his dominance is limited in time. Look at verse 5. The beast was allowed to exercise authority for how long? 42 months. That's three and a half years. That's his authority. That's That's his time limit. You get to do what you want for 42 months. I will allow you to exercise your power and your authority 42 months, three and a half years. Not only that, his dominance is limited in totality. Not everyone will worship the beast. Look at verse 8. Everyone will worship the beast except those whose name has not been found before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. In other words, all true believers whose name are in the book of life will not worship the beast. Those are the only ones. So if you're a true believer, your name is in the book of life, you will not worship the beast. All right? But other than that, he will have dominance over everyone else. Now John closes, verse 9 and 10, with some instructions to believers. Let's look at this. I want you to notice just a couple of things. There's a call to attention to believers. And I believe verse 9 and 10, though we can learn some things from it, verse 9 and 10 are specifically written for those who will be going through this period of time, tribulation believers, people who will come to Christ in that seven-year period. And notice the call to attention believers in the tribulation. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Hey, by the way, have you ever heard that phrase before? We heard that at the end of every message of the churches, given to the churches, seven times. Only there's something missing. At the end of each one of those messages, it was this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here, it just says, anyone has an ear, let him hear. What's missing? The Spirit and the churches. Why? Because they're not here. They're gone. They're raptured. And now he gives two instructions to believers in the tribulation. It's kind of given as a proverb as to how they're to respond to persecution. But I think what he says here has some principles for us as well. So the first instruction is this. You're not going to like this. Those destined for prison are to accept it as the sovereign will of God. Look at what he says in verse 10. And by the way, I'm reading out of the New American Standard version here, verse 10. I think this did the best job of translating this. Verse 10 says this, If anyone is destined for captivity... Destined for captivity. In other words, God chose you to go to prison. God chose you to be His representative in prison. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. You know what He's saying here? Don't be militant. Don't fight it. Don't don't rise up and start some kind of an anti anti Christ campaign. Don't get your guns out. Don't get up in arms and start complaining about your rights being trampled. If anyone is destined for captivity, just go. It's the will of God. You have a new ministry, you have prison ministry. Notice the second instruction, those that are destined for death are to accept it as the sovereign will of God. Verse 10, If anyone kills with the sword with the sword, he must be killed. I, I see, I like the way the New American standard translate that because what it says is this. Listen, when we get threatened, it's easy to retaliate, isn't it? We can be the best of believers, but there's something that stirs up within us and says, you're not going to do that to me. And so, you know, it wouldn't be unlikely a temptation for a lot of Christians to pull out a gun and just shoot someone in the sense of defending themselves. And notice what John says here, if anyone kills with a sword, in other words, if you take another person's life who's attacking you during this time because of your position in Christ, your stand for Christ because of righteousness, then with the sword you must be killed. He's talking about your life ending as well. not talking about not going to war. Don't, Don't bring that up here. He's not talking about defending your family if their lives are threatened. He's talking about persecution for righteousness. This is an individual thing. And by the way, this is the evidence of true faith. Did you know that? Look at the end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Or maybe a little better translation, here is, the endure, here is the endurance and faith of the saints. In other words, what John is saying here is this is how you demonstrate that you are a Christ follower is that you act and respond like Jesus did. Right? You act and respond like Jesus did. You say, well, how did Jesus act and respond? Well, let me close with this. 1 Peter 2. Now, look at this very, very carefully. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For to this, the this, you have to go back into chapter 2 a little backwards and find out he's talking about suffering. He's talking about suffering. So he says, To this, suffering, you have been what? Now, this doesn't just apply to tribulation believers, this is all of us. To suffering, you have been called. Wait a minute. We want to blame suffering on Satan. We want to say, no, 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 God's people don't have to suffer. This isn't just something we might go through. This is our calling. For this you've been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a what? An example. In other words, something you can mimic. In other words, the way that he responded to suffering is the way that you and I respond to suffering. He committed no sin. I mean, here's the truth of it. He didn't deserve to suffer anything. We we probably deserve some of it. He didn't deserve anything. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, verbal abuse, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered physical abuse, he did not do what? He didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly. I believe we're in a prime position for the beast to come. Don't you? I don't know. Maybe it's another hundred years. Who knows? Only God knows. But I will tell you right now, I would not be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the beast is alive today. I would not be surprised at all that the church could be raptured soon. I'm not surprised at all that the world would be thrust into the seven-year tribulation period. I, I'm not surprised by any of those things. But none of those things, now hear me, believer, none of those things should affect the way that we live. shouldn't affect the way that we live. If we lose our rights, if we lose our privileges, does that affect us as believers? Does that affect the kingdom of, you know, that nothing that goes on in this country or any country in the world affects the kingdom of God. Did you know that? The kingdom of God is going to come just like Jesus promised Christ is still in charge, just like He promised. God is still sovereign, just like the Word says He is. None of those things change any of that. It's just how we learn to respond in obedience and faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, there's been a lot here, been a lot of ground left unturned. We thank You for Your truth, for Your Word, for the promises that You give us. We thank you, Father, for coming. And because we have assurance that those things are coming, we have absolute assurance that Jesus Christ is coming. And we will see him. And we will be with him for all eternity. Lord, even in the midst of the darkest of these passages, there is hope. There's encouragement. There's comfort. We do not have to fear evil. We do not have to fear Satan. We do not have to fear a coming world ruler. We do not have to fear because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And that will always be true. So be glorified in us. Teach us, Lord, from this passage today. Help us to be discerning of the times. But more importantly, help us to be discerning and obedient of the way we are to respond to anything that comes into our life knowing that, that we serve a sovereign God who is in complete charge of it all. And for this we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.